Now, we are returning to our sermon series from the book of Matthew, and, well, we're returning to a new normal. We lost Larry just two weeks ago, and it's going to take some time for the new normal to feel normal. Each week, we're going to notice Larry's absence. I feel it deeply right now. For some of us, Larry was a daily presence, and it's going to take time to grieve and adjust. Let's not be like typical Americans and think we can just march through these things. But let's let the Spirit of God work in us according to His will for our grief. And of course, for Marilyn, well, the grief will fade, but never fully leave. And that's a wonderful thing. 42 years of a good marriage. Now, I'm saying this as we move into this new normal, that we not forget that for Marilyn, the grief will linger and that we'll pray for her and not shrink back from reaching out and extending care. Uh, And of course, she is wonderfully humble and receptive. Uh, But let's be that kind of a church. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23. Today, we approach a challenging text. Not because the text is hard to understand, but because its words and its tone are harsh. We live in a society that does not insult a person to his or her face. That's what we have social media for. So it's just not in good form to pronounce bad things to a person directly. It's also hard, this text is hard, because our impression of Jesus, and rightly so, is of a Lord who loves us with an unfathomable, sacrificial love. And so we can find the words Jesus speaks here to be jarring. Now, before we read, I want to put the chapter in context. Jesus is in the last week of his public ministry here on earth. For three years, he has taught the word of God. He's demonstrated its truth and its beauty and how he lived and in the works he did. For three years, he's lifted up the poor and downtrodden confronted the proud and the arrogant who use religion to bolster their selfish way of life. Just a few days prior to the events in our text today, Jesus entered the city as a king, riding on a donkey. Though no one in Jerusalem, not even the crowds that welcomed him, recognized that he was, in fact, the actual God-appointed king of the universe, At best, they considered him a prophet. As king, he entered the temple and drove out the money changers. This led, obviously got a lot of attention, uh, and it led to a series of confrontations with the high priests, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Pharisees. 
In our chapter today, though, Jesus speaks as a prophet. In the Bible, the prophet's role is to hold up the clear teaching of Scripture and use it as a mirror so that God's people can see what they look like in light of that word, so that they can see their sin and folly and repent. Jesus began his whole ministry. His first public statement was a call to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So for three years, most of Israel had had not, nobody really heeded his call except for a, a small band of disciples. Most people remained bound in a religious system that was, well, it it was like a bad cartoon image of what God intended for his people. There is a time, and this text reflects that time, when the prophet's appeals for change come to an end, and he pronounces judgment that is sure and inescapable. Now, we don't talk about this much, but this is a real thing. You can harden your heart to a point where repentance is no longer an option. When I was 15 and 16 years old, so a long time ago, I was resisting the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I remember sitting on an Amtrak train and just aware that I should repent. But I wanted to hold on to the fun that, well, I thought God denied of those who followed him. On the day of my conversion in the late winter of my junior year in high school, I was arguing with God that giving my life completely over to him was not a good idea, at least for right now. And so I told myself in my argument, in my head, I told myself that when I got to college, I would begin a new life as a Christian. That works. And a voice in my head countered, how do you know you'll be able to repent Then, today is the day I offer you salvation. And that thought scared me. I pictured myself hardened in my sin and unable to turn to God. I feared eternity in hell. And by God's empowering grace, I turned and I repented. So I want us to read this chapter recognizing that apart from accepting the gifts of repentance and faith, we too can find ourselves under the same woes with hearts as hard as those of the Pharisees. Now we're going to look at the chapter in three sections. First, Jesus teaches his disciples and the crowd in the temple courts about the scribes and the Pharisees. His teaching will expose the corruption that these religious leaders brought to Israel. Then in the second part, he pronounces God's judgment on the scribes and Pharisees. And finally, he laments over the city that is about to kill him. 
So we're going to cover this and read section by section. Uh, Let's read verses 1 through 12. These are God's words. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers." And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Oh Lord, give us mental strength now to focus and understand, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This first section I've titled The Dark Underbelly of Religion Apart from Jesus. (laughs) The Dark Underbelly of Religion Apart from Jesus. The Pharisees were a religious party who... uh, joined together in calling Israel to devotion to God through careful attention to the law of Moses. They were a back-to-the-Bible kind of people. Scribes were lawyers. They were experts in the law of Moses. And since they spent all their time studying the law of Moses, you would understand that most of them were attracted to the Pharisee party. Here in this text, Jesus says that the Pharisees do not practice what they preach. They are self-promoters who love being recognized as above others. They exalt themselves with the titles of rabbi and teacher. There is an expression among stock traders, and that expression comes in the form of a question. Does he have skin in the game? Does he have skin in the game? One pundit would put it this way. If someone gives you investment advice, ask to see his portfolio. Is he making the same investment he's advising you in? If his advice proves faulty, will he suffer loss? The Pharisees had no skin in the game. They had all kinds of regulations for washing and tithing and keeping the Sabbath, which, given their wealth and their uh, rather leisurely occupation as teachers, all their rules were fairly easy for them to comply with. But if you were a poor dirt farmer, they could be virtually impossible to keep. The effect of this was to make the Pharisees look good while 
though keeping those they taught in a constant state of guilt. The phylacteries and fringes on their garments in verse 5 have their roots in the law of Moses. But they became so prominent among these men. A phylactery was a small leather box tied to a cord. In these boxes, a man would write out and put some key scriptures inside it, and then they would tie these boxes to their hair. The Pharisees loved to make rather large boxes so you could see that the word was, it was right there. It was a way to remind them to keep the word of God before their minds at all times. The fringes were tassels that they would put on the bottom of their robes. So as the wearer of the tassels walked, he would see his tassels flopping in front of him and it would remind him to walk in the ways of God. So they were kind of memory devices. The Pharisees wanted everyone to know that they obeyed the law of God and walked in his ways, so they supersized their phylacteries and tassels. You know, get a load of the scripture box hanging from his head. He's got to be a serious student of the Bible. Who can doubt his piety? Pharisees also loved their titles. They loved being called rabbi or teacher or father or instructor. And in a sense, those titles gave them credibility and authority. Now, it's very easy to read the Gospels and to distance ourselves from men who in our day would look utterly ridiculous with their Bible boxes rattling about their foreheads and their flowing robes trailing bright ribbons. It it seems kind of crazy and dumb. But what Jesus exposes here is fundamental to all religion that does not follow him from the heart. Nancy was recently reading to me something that Pastor Sinclair Ferguson said. He said that the Pharisee spirit is actually the spirit of Adam. I thought that was interesting. This spirit that animated the Pharisees in their various practices is in and around all of us, whether we wear phylacteries or not. So how did the serpent tempt Adam? The serpent told Adam that God was holding back on him. That there was goodness to be had apart from God. All he had to do was eat the fruit of knowledge without God's permission or support, and he would find the life he wanted. So the spirit of Adam and the spirit of the Pharisees is this, under, this idea that somehow through our behavior, through our commitments, through our knowledge, we can find life on our own. A Pharisee spirit is a spirit that says that God is not enough. It's a spirit that says, my obedience, my esteem in the community, my authority are all based on my effort and accomplishments. I don't need God to be religious. I don't need God to be accepted by God. 
Adam got, on, got us started down this path, and it's been our predicament ever since. We want to find our own way to the good life. Listen, church, we are being preached this message every day. We want to find our own way. We want the approval of others in the life we choose. We're not sure, am I really living a good life? Well, others, if others come along and applaud us and assure us that actually we are very good and we're, they're very impressed with all our accomplishments, we feel better. We want honor for our achievements, assurance that we really are among the good people. Now, in a religious age, which we find in the Bible here, you find Pharisees who use religion to assert themselves to get what they want. In a secular age, they come dressed differently. In our day, we call their practices credentialing and virtue signaling. You find Pharisees sitting for interviews on Fox and CNN. You find them standing behind pulpits and lecterns and sitting at the head of kitchen tables. They give TED Talks and write reports for special presidential commissions. They can be Instagram influencers and the stars of YouTube. But you don't have to be famous. You find Pharisees among local church pastors, mothers and fathers, older sisters and brothers, even the manager of your local fast food joint or your next door neighbor has a perfect lawn. The Pharisee spirit is the spirit of Adam. And as sons and daughters of Adam, all of us are prone to this fate. All of us. And I say that from personal experience. Deep down, we know we're faking it. Our therapeutic world even has a name for our unease about ourselves. It's called the imposter syndrome. It's the fear that despite all our achievements, all our education, all our titles and honorifics, we really aren't that much. <laughs> imposter syndrome has its own Wikipedia page. WebMD and the Cleveland Clinic and other medical websites offer help for those plagued with this disease. In fact, imposter syndrome is actually Pharisee syndrome. We seek approval for the things we've done and positions we've attained, only to realize at the end of the day, we're no better than the people who go unnoticed and work in lowly occupations. If anyone who walked this earth ever had the right to be a teacher and to wear the clothes befitting someone of greatness, Anyone had the right to be obeyed unquestionably in his position of authority. It was Jesus. And yet he chose to be born to peasant parents. He likely wore the clothes of a carpenter. He earned no credentials to give him a recognized teaching position. He would do miracles of healing and then tell the recipients not to tell anybody that he did it. He referred to himself as the Son of Man, a title that any of us could take. He pointed people to God, to whom he called Father. 
when in verse 10 he said, you have one instructor, the Christ, no one knew he was referring to himself, except for the small group of disciples surrounding him. In verse 12, he calls us to humble ourselves. Jesus humbled himself, as Paul so eloquently wrote, he humbled himself even to death, to death on a cross. And therefore, God exalted him in his resurrection, ascension, and enthronement in heaven. So Jesus is telling the crowd, this party is a major problem, and you should not listen to them. The text does not mean that the church needs no teachers or elders and overseers, but the measure of your pastor's performance is how well they point you to God and to His Word. How well they call us to see the Lord and follow Him in His ways. The measure is whether their confidence is in God or themselves. In God's words or their own. So Jesus teaches the crowd and the disciples stay away from these guys. They're deadly. Then he turns and speaks directly to them. The second section, verses 13 to 36, is a pronouncement of judgment for specific sins. What you're going to see as we read through this is Jesus pronounces seven woes. The word woe refers to a prophetic denunciation and announcement of coming judgment for sins that a person has been repeatedly confronted for, yet without repentance. And so, if you know your Old Testament well, and you read Matthew 23, you'd say, oh, this is not new. Listen to Isaiah 5. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deceive the innocent of his right. So the language that we're about to read here would have been familiar to everyone listening to Jesus. What was shocking was that he aimed this language at those who were considered the most pious among them. The first woe pronouncement in verse 13 gives no details. Read it with me here. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. The problem is not simply their hypocrisy, as bad as that is. The problem is the effects of their hypocrisy on those who follow them. By following a Pharisee, you are walking away from the kingdom of heaven. The second woe in verse 15 notes how sometimes followers become more zealous than their teachers. Look at 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell 
as yourselves. In this case, the Pharisees would go to extreme lengths to make a Gentile a God-fearer who then becomes a champion for the Pharisaical way of life. Verses 16-22 to 22 have this third woe referring to swearing and making oaths. Read with me. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you who say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Now, swearing involves proclaiming the truthfulness of what you say. Either that the statement you're making is true or that the commitment you're making you will keep. When I was young, you don't hear this anymore, but when I was young, it was not unusual to hear someone make a preposterous claim and then emphasize the truthfulness of what they said by saying, I swear to God, it's true. So, you even have this in popular culture. People want to appeal to an authority above them. Jesus has already in chapter 5 condemned making oaths. He said, let your yes be yes, your no be no. So he's not here saying you need to make better oaths than the Pharisees do. He's showing the blindness of the Pharisees' commitment. He's showing how ridiculous and illogical they are in quibbling over whether you swear by the gift on the altar or the altar itself. The fourth woe is in verses 23 and 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Jesus commends taking care to tithe faithfully, but notes that some practices are more important than others. The Pharisees majored on the minors and neglected what was major. You may tithe from the tiny herb plants in your garden all the while beating your landscaper for not putting the hose away properly. That's the kind of people that they were. The fifth woe has to do with being clean before God. Look at verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate. 
that the outside also may be clean. The law of Moses commanded the priests to wash themselves in a huge basin outside the temple so that when they went before God, they were ceremonially clean. So somewhere along the way, the Pharisees picked this up and said, hey, if it's good for the priests, what about the rest of us? And so they began to introduce these cleanliness rules about washing your feet when you went in the house because you probably came in contact with some Gentile dirt, uh, washing your utensils, even if there was no dirt on them at all, washing your dishes, even if there was no dirt on them at all, because there may be some unclean uh, insect or rodent that walked across them. And, and so they, they developed all these, all these excessive practices. What Jesus does is turn their practice into a met- metaphor. He says, your dishes are like yourselves. But in your case, you clean yourself on the outside so you appear holy, but the inside of the dish where cleanliness is truly needed, since that's what touches your heart, is filled with filth. So clean out your greed. Clean out your self-indulgence. Woe number six is similar to number five. Look at verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, according to the law of Moses, if you were to touch a dead body or touch a grave, you would become spiritually unclean and you had to cleanse yourself before you could go to worship God. So in Israel, to avoid anyone touching a grave, people would whitewash tombs so everyone would easily know to avoid touching them. Jesus, again, characterizes the Pharisees as looking clean and pure on the outside while being dead on the inside due to their hidden hypocrisy and corrupt thoughts and motives. And then we come to the seventh and culminating woe where Jesus also uses the metaphor of a tomb. But in this case, he makes a different comparison. Look at verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would have not taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, 
whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So the Pharisees also like to show their piety by building monuments or constructing tombs or increasing the size of the tombs of the prophets. So they put a lot of money into this. And it would show that, you know, I'm, I'm for Isaiah, I'm for Jeremiah, I'm for uh, Hosea. And so they would honor the prophets in that way. But Jesus says, given what you teach and how you behave, you are actually building tombs for those in, 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 in participation with those who murdered the prophets. They did the dirty work of killing and you finished it with the burial. Those are hard words. In verse 34, Jesus moves from their past behavior to the future. In the future, Jesus will send prophets and wise men and scribes to preach the gospel. And some will be murdered, some flogged, some driven out of town. So Jesus is saying, these teachers of the gospel are going to continue going out in the world. And this Pharisee spirit is going to continue to persecute them. In the book of Acts, we read of the stoning of Stephen. We read of Paul being driven out of towns by those who followed the teaching of the Pharisees. In verse 35, it's a really a, a perplexing verse because Jesus lays accountability for every murder of a righteous person at the feet of the Pharisees. Now, let me explain Abel and Zechariah. Abel is the first recorded murder in the Bible in the book of Genesis. And the murder of Zechariah comes at the end of 2 Chronicles. In the Hebrew Bible, Chronicles was the last book in the Bible. So Jesus is saying, every murder of a righteous person from beginning to end, we might say from Genesis to Revelation, you're accountable for. Now that, somehow that, that doesn't seem right. I mean, They've just been alive for a short time. Zechariah was murdered hundreds of years before. How could the Pharisees be accountable for these murders? I think the answer is implied and given in the coming chapters of Matthew. These same Pharisees would agree to the murder of Jesus, the prophet to whom all true prophets point The generation of Israelites alive during Jesus' lifetime, in particular their leaders, rejected, condemned, and arranged for the death of Jesus, the prophet, priest, and king, to whom all Old Testament prophets, priests, and kings pointed. Now think about this. Because I've established that we're all prone to this Pharisee spirit. Hypocrisy can take you to really bad places. We become so committed to an appearance of righteousness when in fact we know we're corrupt. 
and it can lead to killing the very Son of God. So Jesus' heart, Jesus' harsh language is appropriate because this is where the hypocrisy of the Pharisees takes a person. He'll murder the Son of God. And, you know, I've got to move on to the last point, but I think we need to, we need to recognize that the love of approval, the love of appearance, the love of money, the love of authority over others, it can kill us in our souls. And it is possible to be a whitewashed tomb. Well, as is typical in the whole Bible, the heart of God now is revealed. The heart of God for the people that Jesus has just condemned is revealed. Number three, God's heart cry for those who reject him. Read with me verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not see your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is Jesus' last public statement before he is crucified. Jerusalem is the city of God. From Jerusalem, the intention of God was that from Jerusalem would flow the truth, beauty, and righteousness of God. Jerusalem was where God's people came to meet with him and find forgiveness of their sins. But instead of responding to the prophet to whom all the prophets pointed, the priest whose sacrifice fulfilled completely every sacrifice, the king to whom all kings would submit, instead of responding to him, they stiffened their necks, hardened their hearts, and crucified him. Jesus heart cry was to protect, to cleanse, to heal, to restore. This was his intention for them. But they would not have it. They preferred self-righteousness to Christ's righteousness. They craved the appearance of acceptability to being found under the wings of God's acceptance and love. They hankered after the pitiful wages of independence for the riches that come to the lowest servant of the heavenly king. Verse 36 says, they were not willing. They had a choice and they rejected God's offer. And so their condemnation is sealed. Their hearts are stiffened and set on destroying the very one sent to save them. I said, it's a harsh chapter. And as with any sobering challenge to sinners and to sin, 
we need to we need to we need to see it in ourselves, but then we need to run from it. The spirit of the Pharisee is deadly and deserving condemnation in hell, but God's grace is greater still. So we can't excuse our hypocrisies. We must not boast or strive for accomplishments that give us preferential treatment. We must not place the applause of others above the invitation of God to trust Him for our approval. We've got to turn from that. Hypocrisy is deadly, like an addictive drug. It pulls you in deeper and deeper to the point where you'll do anything for your next fix of praise. To the hypocrite, denying yourself praise and honor seems impossible. But change is possible. With God's enabling grace, this God who longs for us like a hen for her chicks, He will give us faith and He will make us change. The kind of change that proceeds not from self-righteousness, but from faith. In verse 12, Jesus calls us to humble ourselves. In verse 10, He tells us we must submit ourselves to our teacher and mentor, Jesus Christ. We must trust Him for life and wisdom. Following Him to His cross. Receiving His death to pay for our hypocrisies. And then turning and seeking to live like He lived. In love for others. Submitting to the will of the Father. Even though it could cost us Everything. Everything this life has to offer. So it's not just a call to recognize sin in others. It's not just a call to recognize sin and hypocrisy in ourselves. It's an invitation. Here's this hen. Jesus depicts himself as a hen. And this church, because we met outdoors for a while, we have some experience with chickens. Those little chicks, they get scared. They're needy. They run under their mother's wings. That's how God says, I, I want you. I want you. I want to forgive you. I want to change you. So Jesus' public ministry ends with sorrow over grace rejected. Jesus Christ reaches out to all of us here today. He invites us to draw near to Him as chicks run for warmth and protection from their mother. It's in Jesus Christ that we find the forgiveness of our sins. We find freedom from our imposter syndrome we find peace with God and eternal life. Amen. Pray with me, please. Lord, I, I felt my weakness in this whole sermon because I can't do what only you can do and what you must do. I pray 
those of us who know we're imposters, that you would give grace to see it and repent. I pray for those who have turned to you and repented, that they would find their satisfaction and hope and joy in the riches that you give, in the honor that you give. I pray, Lord, that you would soften our hearts to you and harden our hearts to the, the, the spirit of Adam that is so prevalent in our world. I pray that you would change us so that we could be disciples of Jesus Christ and follow him wherever he may lead. We pray for this in Jesus' name.